Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. Welcome to the 43rd episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. All right, so we're back for part two of our Squeaky Clean episode focused on offshore wind. If you haven't tuned in yet to listen to part one, where we interviewed Eric Thuma of Avangrid and kicked off the conversation with Abby Watson of Siemens Gamesa, I'd recommend you give today's episode a pause to go back and give a listen to part one. As you may remember from the first part of this episode, we sat down with Eric to talk about the development pipeline for offshore wind projects in North Carolina in the Southeast. Then we just started to pick Abby's brain on the supply chain for the offshore wind industry here in the United States. We left off with a question about the potential growth within the supply chain of offshore wind should some of the current projections for the industry come to fruition. Abby mentioned the potential for 83,000 new jobs and up to $25 billion annually in economic output. So let's jump right back into the conversation with Abby Watson, head of government affairs for North America at Siemens Gamesa. But before we do, stay tuned through the end of this episode where we'll include an additional conversation about some of the energy issues currently taking place out in Texas and the Midwest. All right, so back to the conversation with Abby. So when a company like Siemens Gamesa is determining locations for future manufacturing facilities, what are some of the most important aspects to take into consideration for that? So something that might be helpful for context for your listeners um, is that the components that are used to assemble an offshore wind turbine are massive. Um, I mean, so large that it's really kind of hard to even wrap your head around it. Um, I have spent most of my career in the onshore wind side of the business and never thought that I would feel as though onshore wind components could look small until I saw an onshore wind blade next to an offshore wind blade at one of our production facilities in Denmark. And it really kind of drove the point home of how much bigger these are. Um, Our nacelles for kind of our our next generation turbines weigh roughly 500 tons. Um, So they're incredibly large. They are incredibly heavy components. Our latest rotor design, um, a single blade is longer than a football field. Um, So when you have components of that size and that weight, you can't really move them around much. Um, So moving them on road or by rail is just technically infeasible um, from a dimensions point of view and the weight. Uh, So because of that, you really have to identify um, a manufacturing location that's on the water somewhere. So you need to be kind of at a port, ideally somewhere with uh, a deep water berthing so that you could bring, you know, ocean going vessels right there to the quayside and, you know, you manufacture everything in the factory and then you literally just wheel it onto a ship um, and then you can you can take that component to the wind farm where it's going to be installed. Um, So given that context, uh, some of the key considerations that we look at are the port infrastructure. You know, are there existing 
um, key sides? Is there dredging that needs to be done? Um, you know, are there is there an existing maritime industry which is really helpful and important for us just from a workforce perspective? Um, Another key component is definitely the level of market commitment uh, in any given state and whether that state has local content priorities. Um, you know, that's something that uh, we've seen um, sort of a, a variety of different approaches taken by different states, but um, there have been a number of states who have both made large market commitments, as well as, you know, made a clear um, incentive for, you know, creating some of your products locally. So that's certainly a factor that we look at in our in our analysis. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of other factors that play into it. The cost of the real estate is a factor. Cost of the workforce is a factor. Um, distance to lease areas is certainly very important. So the time that it takes to go from your factory to the wind farms um, is is quite important, um, and uh, you know customer commitments are no small part of it. So a lot of um, a lot of what we do, uh, you know, we tend to create strategic partnerships with a handful of customers um, and try to try to get to the scale and the volume that's necessary to really build a business case for kind of establishing a new manufacturing facility. So. There's a lot of considerations and to say that one is more important than the other is impossible. So it really is, you know, an interaction of all of those pieces and how they come together. Um, so there isn't really one right solution. Um, it's just kind of a, a balancing act of factoring in all of those different elements and, you know, trying to find the best, most sustainable business case for your facility for the long term. Sure. Yeah. And so, um, can you talk a little bit more about some of the investments that Siemens Gamesa has already made here in the state of North Carolina? Um, sure. So Siemens Gamesa itself um, does not have any facilities that are currently located in North Carolina, although we did supply the turbines um, to the Amazon wind farm that's located um, on the coast of North Carolina. Uh, formerly known as, I believe that was called the Onshore Kitty Hawk Project. Uh, that was a, a wind farm that we supplied uh, the turbines to Avon Grid, um, who developed that wind farm. Um, however, Siemens Energy um, has quite a significant presence in Charlotte. That's actually the location of their energy hub. Uh, where they do a lot of work for the gas and steam turbine businesses. And, you know, we are working to, you know, find synergies and continue to collaborate and work together with them more closely. So I imagine that um, some of the personnel and resources that are there in Charlotte will likely, um, you know, bring benefits to Siemens Gamesa as we continue to find new ways to work together with Siemens Energy. You know, as we continue to see some of the, the projects such as the, the Kitty Hawk project um, continue to move further down that development pipeline here off the coast of North Carolina. Do you anticipate that that may lead to additional investments in the state from companies like Siemens Gamesa? Yeah, I would say the race is on. Um, so time is of the essence. Um, it, I think a lot of people are looking at making kind of a first wave of investments in supply chain uh, in the near term. You know, I'd say within the next year or two, you'll probably see quite a few announcements um, from, you know, several companies, I'm sure, uh, looking to 
make commitments to establish some supply chain facilities in the U.S. for offshore wind. Um, there's going to be a lot of activity. Not all of it will necessarily be tied to state market commitments, um, but you're likely to see more of the bigger investments kind of gravitating towards those states that have made bigger commitments. But as I mentioned before, it's a it's quite a complex equation when you are kind of building your business case to determine what's the right location for your facilities. So there are ways for states that don't have as large of a market commitment to kind of overcome um, some of some of those, you know, evaluation factors that we have um, in other areas. You know, if you can work towards savings in different areas, then it can kind of help sort of backstop on the market side. Um, but, you know, I think it would really help to see action from the state legislature um, and to and to really continue to develop some of the principles that were outlined in that regional MOU. I mean, as I mentioned before, more cooperation between states on recognizing the value of, you know, content that's manufactured in adjacent states, I think would be incredibly helpful um, to help build that business case. And I, you know, I don't know that anyone has done this study yet, but I have been encouraging this study in a number of venues. Um, I think that there is a case to be made that a manufacturing facility set up in an adjacent state does have positive economic benefits to its neighboring states. Um, and so it may help to see that quantified um, to kind of move in that direction. But it's the fragmentation of this market that I think is the most challenging thing about developing a supply chain in the US. Thinking about um, kind of the future and moving forward, what do you foresee as some of the biggest opportunities here in the state of North Carolina? Well, North Carolina has some really fantastic port assets and maritime assets um, and, you know, may be able to offer some of those assets to the industry at a lower cost than you might see in some states that are further north. Um, so I think that's a great benefit that North Carolina can use to its advantage. Um, there's a really strong workforce in North Carolina. Uh, that is something that I think doesn't get enough attention the value that workforce has, and frankly, the cost of training up workforce that doesn't exist, it's significant. So the fact that North Carolina does have a really strong workforce that crosses the whole spectrum. I mean, you've got uh, amazing research capabilities in North Carolina. You've got a lot of science and research being done. You have great technical people in North Carolina, and there's a huge population of uh, workforce with a military background, which for offshore wind is a pretty strong hiring priority for us. Um, so that's something that we really look at quite favorably. Um, in general, folks with a military background um, tend to be very mission focused um, and have a really strong respect for procedures and health and safety. And when you are out you know, 30 miles out in the ocean working on a wind turbine, nothing could possibly be more important than respecting protocol and following the procedures and, you know, not cutting corners. So you know, the last thing anyone wants is a health and safety incident when you're 30 miles out in the ocean. So um, folks with military backgrounds are a pretty high priority for us in terms of recruiting. And I think that's something that North Carolina um, certainly has to offer. Um, and, you know, there's there's some, uh, you've got some great utilities in North Carolina that have a lot of experience developing um, developing projects. And I think that they can help bring 
some of the oil and gas players um, into the offshore wind market more. I think that's going to be a real benefit to the U.S. industry as a whole. There's a lot of transferable skills, um, you know, a lot of vessels that we can be bringing in from the Gulf. There's a lot of capital that can be deployed into the offshore industry. So, you know, I think there's a lot of great pieces there. Um, and we're just really um, anxious to see some more uh, action to really create um, that, that clear and consistent market signal that folks really need in order to invest. Yeah, I'm I'm so glad that you mentioned, you know, the military component. Um, you know, some of our, our strongest allies in the clean energy space here in North Carolina have been within the the military ecosystem. You know, I have to give a shout out to the North Carolina Military Business Center and Scott Dorney over there, um, who's just been such a wonderful partner of ours. And, you know, you've seen some of the bases here in North Carolina lead the charge in terms of their installation of clean energy projects as they realize it's a an important component to resiliency and making sure that our, our military is well equi- equipped, um, you know, for for the future um, with whatever challenges we might face. So, um, given the fact that North Carolina has some of the largest military bases in the country, uh, is a good signal that you know we have a lot of military members ready to join the clean energy workforce after uh, after their service. So, so glad to hear about that. Um, and you know, just in general, it sounds like there's a, a fairly optimistic future for. Uh, offshore wind here in the state of North Carolina, as signaled by our governor, um, as you know, from our partners like the Southeastern Wind Coalition and and by companies and manufacturers like yours who have a strong interest here in the state. So, uh, Abby, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today on on the podcast to, to provide us a little bit of insight as to some of the work that Siemens Gamesa is doing across the country and in the Southeast, and then you know keeping your eyes on opportunities in North Carolina as they continue to develop over the coming years. So um, I just wanted to thank you once again for joining us, and I'm sure the friends of the pod are, are excited to have you on and listen to this episode. So Abby, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. All right, so we've covered the development angle, we've dove in deep to the supply chain, and now it's time to talk about the importance of government support for an industry that's on the cusp of real significant growth throughout the region. So up next on the Squeaky Clean podcast, we're joined by someone from the current administration here in North Carolina to talk about some of the recent developments signaling our state's readiness for the offshore wind industry. All right, here we go. Our next guest currently serves as the executive director of the Office of Science, Technology, and Innovation in the North Carolina Department of Commerce. From 2003 to 2008, he served as the office's deputy director and chief policy analyst. In his current position, he conducts strategic planning and makes recommendations for technology-based economic development implements technology-related economic development policy and resource allocations, supervises the staff of the Board of Science, Technology, and Innovation, directs and oversees the administration of grant programs to support technology development and commercialization, and oversees strategic initiatives. Friends of the pod, welcome to the podcast, John Harden, Executive Director of the Office of Science, Technology, and Innovation in the North Carolina Department of Commerce. John, Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. We are so happy to have you here on today's episode. So let's just dive right into it. So first off, can you tell us a little bit more about your office and the role that you play within the Department of Commerce? 
Yes, my office is the Office of Science, Technology, and Innovation, and that is one of many offices within the North Carolina Department of Commerce. And you could really divide the types of things that we do into two categories. About half of the work we do, I would put in the policy slash strategy category, and that is um, we work a lot with the governor and the legislature to make sure that North Carolina has in place the policies and programs that, that help make North Carolina's whole innovation ecosystem um, vibrant and, and active. And we do that primarily by staffing um, a state board, an advisory board called the North Carolina Board of Science, Technology, and Innovation. There are 25 members on that board. They come from around the state, different, different sectors, universities, private sector, and, and they're really a think tank for, for state policymakers on science, technology, and innovation. So that's about half of what we do. The other half is much more programmatic and tactical. And uh, the majority of that work entails grant programs where we give grants to small businesses to help them develop new technologies and take those technologies to market. And so they're really technology commercialization programs, but we periodically also um, run some conferences. We uh, also uh, do a lot of matchmaking between businesses and universities and researchers. And, and we generally do a lot of presentations and just we're the, we're the voice and, and face of commerce when it comes to science, technology, and innovation. Diving into the topic of offshore wind and clean energy and part of the reason why we have you on the pod today, you know, in getting ready for the, the offshore wind industry here in the state, uh, North Carolina recently announced the winner of an RFP issued to study the supply chain around offshore wind. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that RFP and some of the anticipated outcomes? Any insights you can also provide us about the current state of offshore wind supply chain here in the state as well would be helpful. Yes, as you, as you may know, an RFP stands for Request for Proposals. And so um, this is a common process when you're developing a new industry or, or anything new in a state. And, and that is that uh, what, what we knew that North Carolina had a real opportunity in offshore wind, <clears throat> but what we didn't know was the, the size of that opportunity and where North Carolina fits best into that opportunity. What's our sweet spot? And so, so the, the RFP um, went out um, internationally and it was issued by the Department of Commerce. And uh, basically we were requesting expertise, consulting expertise on North Carolina's supply chain opportunities related to offshore wind, as well as our ports and uh, how, how well positioned are our ports, the port of Moorhead City and the port of Wilmington and, and some smaller private ports as well to serve that emerging industry. And so um, we made a very specified um, RFP for the type of expertise we were looking for. We sent that and we had $150,000 to support this effort over about a six month period. And that went out internationally. We received um, 16 different proposals in response to that RFP, some from the US, some from Europe, um, and they all had very diverse teams. Um, all of the proposals were very strong, but after a detailed review, we selected um, a firm named BBG Associates. It's based in UK, but they also have offices in the US. 
But that team, um, in addition to BVG, includes um, the Timmins Group out of Virginia, Lloyd's Register also out of the UK, and um, heavy involvement also by NC State University. So it's a multi-organization team and a multi-person team that over the next, um, actually now it's they'll be concluding in December, but over the last several months, they have been doing a deep dive into um, to all the things I just noted. And that is, um, you know, where in the whole supply chain space can North Carolina play its strongest role? Would it be in developing, for example, the towers that, that support the, the um, turbines or would it be the, the turbines themselves? Would it be all the components that go into the turbine? Would it be the offshore, um, you know, insulin installation and maintenance work? And so I don't know the final answer yet. That's actually what they're working on right now. But um, that, that's the purpose is for them to tell us where we are best positioned. They also will tell us um, where our ports are best positioned. Uh, do, are they well positioned to serve as construction and staging areas? Are they good for operations and maintenance? Um, all of that. And so, and also how well equipped is North Carolina's workforce to, to serve the supply chain and, and also the incentive programs that we have in the state to attract new companies here or to help existing companies um, retool and pivot to serve this new industry. Uh, and even more news, recent news with the state of North Carolina. Um, the governor recently signed an MOU with Maryland and Virginia stating our intent to create the Southeast and Mid-Atlantic Regional Transformative Partnership for Offshore Wind Energy Resources, or Smart Power. Can you tell us a little bit more about this MOU and what might transpire as a result? Yes. So this MOU is a, is a landmark MOU. It's, it's, it's rare that three states come together to pursue an emerging industry like this. And we did it because the, it, it will provide benefits to all three states. And that is, this is a very large economic opportunity. It's very new and it's, it's very much nascent and emerging. And so we want to confront this, you know, in a, in a proactive sort of way that, uh, that, that benefits us all. And the, what we've learned is um, because the industry um, initiated in, um, in Europe and um, is coming over to the U.S., the, that uh, in speaking with the current developers in Europe, they don't really make a distinction. Uh, you know, they're aware that we have states, but they don't make a distinction as to whether, you know, something is located in Maryland or Virginia or North Carolina. They just want to, uh, you know, work with industry and, and bring their industry over to help develop these and also work with U.S. industry. And um, it's also often confusing to them the, the different uh, rules and regulations that different states have. So in order to, to provide a more united front, uh, the states have banded together to, 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 as a region to, to work together. And so the agreement is not a formal contract. It's not a binding agreement. It doesn't say that the states have to do anything, but it does lay out several ways that they will work together essentially as a team. And, and let me give you some examples of that. Um, as I noted earlier, the, the federal government has a, has a lot of jurisdiction over uh, the, where these wind energy areas are located or how many there can be or how far apart they are. And um, the, the states um, can make a stronger case 
to the federal government and chime in in that process much more effectively if they work together than if they're working in, in competition. So that's one example. Second, the states can um, work together to brand themselves as a region. Uh, this opportunity is so big that it, it's uh, no one, no single state can provide all the supplies that are needed and the materials that are needed to, to develop a wind farm. And so uh, it makes sense for them to coordinate and to have a, a productive division of labor. Uh, a third example is that, uh, as I noted um, earlier, the, the outside world, uh, outside of the U.S., um, doesn't necessarily you know, understand the, the differences between the states. And, um, and to the extent that the states can come together and present a united uh, message about um, the region, uh, that, that will be effective in, in marketing purposes and in attracting industry. And so the, the goal here with this MOU is to make um, one plus one plus one, the individual states, not just add up to three, but to add up to four or something larger, you know, to have a multiplier effect from, from having multiple states um, work together. Yeah, and I know this was really exciting and, and welcomed news from all of those within the clean energy industry here in North Carolina, um, especially signaling that our state is open and ready for businesses and developers to come in and you know, explore opportunities to, to build offshore wind projects along our coast. So just in general, um, there seems to be a lot of movement around the offshore wind industry in North Carolina this year. Any insight as to why all this momentum now? And that's, that's a great question that you could ask about almost anything. Where did this come from? And it's, it's often hard to, to know exactly what the source of something is. And, and often is, there's rarely you know, a single source. But in, in this case, I think it comes down to at least two or three factors. Number one, Governor Cooper in 2018 issued Executive Order 80, and that's North Carolina's commitment to address climate change and promote a clean energy economy. And, um, and this uh, uh, effort related to offshore wind is very consistent with that. You know, it might have happened already absent that executive order, but what, it, what that executive order did was it, was it put carbon reduction and climate change, you know, front and center in people's minds. And, uh, you know, when, when you're exploring various, you know, energy sources, if one of your main criteria is to reduce carbon, you would consider options that, that you might not have considered before. And I think that's why offshore wind, one reason that offshore wind became an option is because it's, it's a great way to reduce carbon. Um, second, um, it clearly, the, the, uh, industry has matured in in Europe, and um, and so it's it's ready to expand beyond Europe, and in in many ways the U.S. is will benefit from this because there there can be a second mover advantage. You know, Europe. If you ask the people who developed offshore wind in Europe, they will tell you it was not always a linear, smooth path. They had lots of lots of uh, hurdles to get through, and um, and they they love offshore wind. Um, energy and, and use it very productively. But the fact that they have gone through a lot of those hurdles and, and surpassed them may make it easier to be adopted here in the U.S. And so that's another reason. It's just the, the time is is kind of right. Um, and third, um, it's, it's, 
the I think it's it really comes down to to some extent leadership and and that is that uh, you know not all states on the East Coast have have embraced offshore wind yet and uh, it, some political leaders uh, are more in favor of it than others. Uh, Governor Cooper happens to be in favor of it, and so when the chief executive of a state chooses to make something a priority, not just through Executive Order 80, but through specifically focusing on a, a technology like this that um, causes people to come together and and move forward. John, I, I appreciate you joining us on today's episode to provide some insights as to uh, you know the recent MOU and the RFP around the supply chain of offshore wind. Um, you know, just as a squeaky clean energy community, we thank you and your office for all of your hard work in this space. And, you know, uh, I'm certain that it's it's helping us to move us forward as an industry um, and bringing us closer to offshore wind uh, here in the state of North Carolina and opportunities for lots more jobs and uh, lots more economic development here within the state. So, uh, John, Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. All right. And my key takeaway for today's episode is we have a huge economic opportunity in front of us with the growth of the offshore wind industry throughout the United States. You heard it from Abby. With the projected growth of the industry to 30 gigawatts, we could expect to see up to 83,000 new jobs. That's huge, and it adds to the narrative that clean energy is one of the fastest, if not the fastest, growing sector of the economy in the United States. North Carolina is well positioned to take advantage of this growth with our geographic advantages, along with our strong workforce and infrastructure positions. Next up is moving the needle on policy and continuing to build widespread support for the technology over the coming years. I, for one, am looking forward to the day where we see turbines in the water producing electricity, especially if the projections pan out that Eric had mentioned for the Kitty Hawk project, up to 700,000 homes powered by this one project alone. This is not a story we're going to let fall by the wayside. Continue listening to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we'll be sure to provide many new updates on the status of our offshore wind industry. Make sure to check out the show notes for a list of resources referenced in today's episode and to do your own research about the current status of the industry. And before we wrap up, we wanted to feature one additional conversation and update related to some timely energy news. As a quick preface, this conversation was recorded the afternoon of Wednesday, February 17th. So the story is still ever evolving with additional updates and details sure to be released in the coming days and weeks. All right. So as many of our listeners are probably aware, energy has made its way into national headlines this week with an unprecedented blistery winter storm moving across the Midwest, causing rolling blackouts for millions of customers. We've all probably heard different theories and reasons for the blackout from surging energy demand spurred by low temperatures and heating the home or frozen wind turbines or antiquated energy infrastructure and generation. Um, so just to help us kind of break down the situation, um, you know, kind of clear through all the different narratives that are going on out there and giving us just a, a good sense as to what really happened this week, we've invited NCSEA's Chief of Strategy and Innovation, Ivan Erlob, to the podcast. Many of you are probably familiar with Ivan as he's been on the podcast before, and he's really our energy extraordinaire 
uh, here internally. So I'm really excited to welcome Ivan back to the podcast. Uh, so Ivan, do you mind providing us some overall background on the Midwest energy situation that's taking place this week? Sure. Uh, well, it's great to be back on Squeaky Clean. Uh, yeah, in short, there are three large uh, U.S. grid operators that span several states have just experienced uh, record uh, cold weather, and that's driven uh, record consumer demand or load uh, for electricity, but also really high demand for natural gas. Um, the Midwest Independent System Operator, for example, experienced a 32 gigawatt load. That's five gigawatts higher than, than last year's peak. Uh, that's a lot. Uh, around 2 a.m. Sunday morning, February 15th, uh, people were already having a chilly Valentine's Day <laughs> the day before. Um, the grid operator in Texas called the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, or ERCOT, had to shed 10 gigawatts of load in minutes, in minutes. Uh, that was enough to power about 2 million homes. So they had to reach out to all these power companies and say, turn it off. Um, just you need to stop serving customers. And they promised everyone and communicated rolling blackouts. And those blackouts turned out to not be so rolling. Uh, people have gone in uh, many instances days uh, now without power. And it's uh, been quite devastating. And this isn't just a Texas thing. I know that there's a, there's a lot of headlines out there saying what this is and isn't. Um, one of those is saying it's Texas. But as of Tuesday, North Dakota, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, all having blackouts. Um, this is quite a climatic phenomenon. You know, a lot of people were, were quick to cast judgment and share their opinion on the situation. Uh, as, as many of our listeners know, social media was ablaze with these hot takes this week. Uh, so I am curious, Ivan, what really happened? What, what failed in this situation? What we know is that temperatures reached record lows. They were sub-zero. It caused a complex web of dynamic interrelated problems at all levels of the system, all the way from where supply comes out of the ground uh, down to where people use energy. These system-wide problems uh, were even worse uh, because they had negative feedbacks. Uh, and these feedbacks are beyond the scope of any one government authority or power grid authority, pipeline authority, and really arguably beyond what is normally visible um, to the institutions we rely on to see what's going on. And, and that that's that, so that there's problems on all scales here. So it appears um, that potentially more than 40 percent of ERCOT, for example, power generating capacity either froze or had to be forced offline. Um, when over the over that weekend, uh, when temperatures were in many areas going uh, well below freezing sub-zero, uh, this is over 30 gigawatts of operable capacity at once to generate electricity. But then there's other problems: uh, drilling liquids froze inside pipes, shutting down shale gas wells that became frozen off, reducing gas supply. This even reached into the oil supply, shutting down uh, oil drilling. Natural gas exports for their for the Texas economy had to be curtailed at the order of the governor. Um, pipes experienced freezing that reduced gas supply. Natural gas, coal, and I'm hearing even nuclear plants. Although I don't understand how nuclear plants freeze, um, but I, I haven't seen any reports on that yet. But people are saying nuclear plants were presumably forced offline uh, because of the situation on the grid. Some transmission capacity was lost or forced offline, and so that also made it harder to do rolling blackouts. And many news outlets that um, 
really specialize in uh, political and election reporting. So those are the ones we often turn to the most, unfortunately, are not uh, great at technical reporting. Um, they really jumped to declare uh, reasons or observations for this blackout. So one of those was wind power, but what we know of the 30 plus gigawatts uh, that went offline, uh, wind accounted for up to uh, four and a half gigawatts or about 13% of the total uh, generation outages. So talking about, you know, talking about customers that have been impacted by these issues um, and, and specifically about the rolling blackouts this week, um, you know, the burden is not equally distributed amongst customers when in many cases, customers with the highest energy burden face the brunt of the consequences. In this case, have there been concerns about how the blackouts have impacted low and moderate income consumers in the Midwest and Texas market? Yeah, so there's things we know from NCSEA's work on inclusive financing and, you know, over a decade of um, really following and looking for data on who has energy burden, where are they, who are they, uh, why, um, lack of access to capital, lack of access to credit, um, you know, just unable to implement simple efficiency measures, lack of building codes to make sure that when people rent a place to live or buy a home, uh, that it is up to par, um, that it's not going to be as cold inside as it is outside in these terrible moments, uh, climatic moments. Um, Texas, um, as I've been doing research into their situation, um, has some uh, insufficient building codes, it looks like, on energy conservation. Uh, also, um, it looks like there's some obvious inequities. I was just watching the news last night. It was a pretty stark image um, to see low-income communities and uh, predominantly communities of color outside downtown Houston standing there, people outside, angry, frustrated, scared, uh, pointing at downtown Houston. Their lights are out, but downtown Houston, those skyscrapers were lit up top to bottom. And they're saying, why? And they want to understand. This isn't some, there isn't some evil malicious person sitting at the switch making sure, I, I assume, and I think it's a safe assumption, there's good people in the energy industry sitting there at a switch making sure um, that they keep the lights off in for communities of color, right, and, and low-income communities. I don't think that's happening, but decades of systemic underinvestment, underattention, um, lack of affordable options, inclusive options for efficiency, lack of building codes adds up and it adds up to a lot of suffering. Some people's home burnt down uh, when trying to make a fire in their fireplace. A mother and daughter died in their car, running it in the garage to stay warm, not thinking about carbon monoxide. When people are driven to those kinds of circumstances, we have to ask ourselves, could we have, in very affordable ways, systemically done better by everyone? And, um, and yeah, there's, there's some ways that we can all learn from that North Carolina could learn from right now with our um, building energy conservation codes, for example. It's cheaper to plan and do it way in advance and do it incrementally, like when you build a new building, just make it right from the go, as opposed to like ERCOT issued a warning just days before the weather hit, um, telling everyone with, with energy infrastructure to winterize. Okay, that's the most expensive way to winterize. And what about all these folks, all these uh, customers that are told to turn their thermostat down to 68 degrees or 58 degrees? Well, guess what? Within hours, their temperatures inside their homes were below that. 
and still they needed to shed load and still they couldn't get enough generation online. Um, my own family's houses were down in the 40s, uh, you know, for 12 hours straight. And stack that on top of, you know, the the financial burdens that, that many folks are facing right now due to COVID. I mean, we saw in North Carolina last year, right, that there were over a million customers that were overdue on utility bills as a result of, of COVID. And so, you know, if the, the, the struggle or the, the challenge isn't already enough as a result of COVID stacking, you know, rolling blackouts and, and not having power to, to keep the lights on uh, and to keep homes warm uh, is just unimaginable. Um, so, you know, thinking about since we are you know, a North Carolina focused podcast, I know our listeners would be interested to know how or if this story has any applicability to our, our market here in North Carolina in the Southeast? So if, uh, first of all, um, we need to take a breath. North Carolina dodged a bullet. Uh, this weather did not hit us like it did a lot of the nation. Thankfully, that gives us some time, at least until probably next winter, um, to, to answer this question thoughtfully. So let's stand back. Let's, let's um, make sure who we're listening to. Uh, people whose ability to achieve their goals when it comes to energy um, in ways that uh, depend most heavily on providing accurate explanations of what happened and what caused it, that's who we need to listen to. Um, especially people whose paycheck depends and they lose their paycheck if they give us bad information. That's not media. That's not politicians. Um, this, this, this is like the North Carolina Utilities Commission, the Department of Environmental Quality, um, uh, maybe in an investigative uh, look. Um, maybe the legislature should call for an investigative look and say, what happened there? What are we learning? Uh, what has been issued by credible sources uh, of in, from their investigation into what happened? Now let's say, what does that mean for North Carolina? We have time to do that. We have we have this year. We have spring, summer, and maybe into fall to make that assessment. Um, these are climatically driven conditions. The polar vortex reached put snow on the beaches of Texas because it's getting so hot in the Arctic Circle. There's this is related. We don't have to talk about climate change here. We just have to talk about being smart. Um, ERCOT did not in their planning. Uh, their most extreme scenarios include this extreme of a scenario. That's a problem. Do we have blind spots like that in North Carolina? I don't know. Uh, so I would say, first, let's not jump to conclusions. Let's see what uh, credible sources say happened and why. Um, we need to look at uh, winterizing, for example. Wind, let's, what do we need to understand in North Carolina about winterizing our energy infrastructure? Um, what do we need to understand about proactively improving uh, building efficiency uh, so that people can be safer and, and healthier and, and, hey, have more affordable bills along the way, right, in their homes? Um, we need to take a look at uh, what our risk exposure is, and then we need to look beyond that. I would think it would be great if North Carolina said, how far off was the most extreme scenario in Texas? Uh, from this reality. And then let's say, what is North Carolina's most extreme scenario? Don't be afraid. No one's going to judge you. You're no one's going to say you're chicken little today. And, um, 
and let's let's look let's assume even more extreme than that for North Carolina. What blind spots does that reveal for us for how we may not be prepared? Those are the kinds of things we do, and we need to be cautious. People are going to jump to conclusions that we need to maintain even bigger reserve utility reserve margins. Well, I think we're already learning from how things played out in um, Texas that that's not going to solve anything. I mean, gas gas froze, couldn't come out of the ground, pipelines froze. Um, so just having more power plants that we're paying more for sitting there so that we can't run them. Um, so we need to be careful about jumping to conclusions. It will be important for North Carolina when we reflect on this crisis and say, what does it mean for us and what should we be doing to look at four time horizons? Uh, there's what happened in the moment of the crisis. What can we learn from that? What applies to us? There's what happened in the days before. There was a communications failure between entities and between entities and consumers. People were not given the heads up they needed for their own safety uh, and uh, affordability. Beyond that, months and years ahead, planning. What can we do with our planning so that we can see natural gas and power generation together? Can we integrate those at the Utilities Commission? Even further, can we integrate distribution system planning and transmission planning so we can see them all together? It's possible. Uh, Nehruk and Nazio just completed task force work. Awesome documentation produced by 16 state commissions and state energy offices and others. I was a stakeholder in that process. I have great respect for the products um, they produced. We can learn from that. Uh, there's more we can do here in North Carolina. And lastly, a decade before the crisis, um, you know, we can stand back and look at things like building codes. Uh, we can look at the grid itself. Um, we need transmission in places we don't need it in others, et cetera, et cetera. We need to assess that so that um, structurally we're making those incremental investments to um, be resilient, reliable, and frankly, be clean. Afford the path to affordability is clean. And so we've got to stay away from uh, people who are opportunistically trying to blame this just on natural gas or just on wind. You know, Ivan, um, I, I'm really excited that we had a chance to, to pick your brain on this topic for the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast is I, I think many within the industry understand that all of these markets as diverse and, and different as they are across the country, there are a lot of lessons that can be taken from one another as we're continuing to evolve and transform and, and move forward into that energy market of the future. So, uh, Ivan, thank you again for joining us on the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, and we're looking forward to having you back soon for more updates on this story as we get more information. Thanks, Matt. I love the pod. And that's a wrap on this episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. But before you go... I'll leave you with another dad joke to hold you over until our next episode. All right. Why do transformers hum? They don't know the words. And you know the deal. Let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout at Matt Abel, M-A-T-T-A-B-E-L-E, for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners. And episode 43 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. 
Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the Friends of the Pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See you all later.